Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, if you could take your Bibles and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. As you're turning there, uh, just a housekeeping matter. Uh, there is a Toyota Avalon that is parked in a handicapped spot. License plate number KPW107. I'm glad there's no 666 in there, by the way. And the lights are on, so. Anyway, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I get the privilege of opening the conference talking about the rapture of the church. Uh, I was uh, thinking about this the other day. There isn't a single problem in my life that the rapture wouldn't fix. <laughs> and so I'm, I am looking forward to the rapture. Matter of fact, speaking of politics, I had someone come up to me and say uh, at my church, uh, we've got to be in the last days. And I said, why do you say that? Well, it says right here in the Bible, the last trump. And so uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best way of uh, interpreting the biblical text, but First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through 18. Uh, what I'm going to try to do today, uh, this evening, is kind of uh, lay out what is the rapture. Has anybody heard of the rapture? Okay, pretty popular doctrine. And if I have time, I'm looking here at the clock. My, my church gave up putting up a second-hand clock up here. They put up a calendar instead. <laughs> but I'll watch the clock very carefully and not go too long. But if I have time, I want to get into when is the rapture. I'm not going to say November 10th or something. Uh, but when is the rapture relative to the coming seven-year tribulation period? There's a big fight on that, as you might know. But let's start off with what is the rapture. Um, I'm going to try to uh, develop 10 points from two passages of Scripture. The first is 1 Thessalonians 4. And you might want to have a finger over in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Because those are really the two central uh, passages of Scripture that we have that clearly outlined the rapture of the church. So let's go ahead and start with uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 13 through 18. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you will not grieve as, to, as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When we talk about this concept or this doctrine of the rapture, what exactly are we talking about? Well, first of all, the rapture is an important doctrine. There are a lot of people out there on the landscape that will tell you that, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe about the rapture. Uh, I was kind of came of age in an environment uh, where people told me this relative to the rapture views. They said, you know, pray for pre, but plan for post. <laughs> And uh, kind of the message that was communicated to me was, well, we really can't know with certainty uh, about this doctrine of the rapture. And you know what? It really isn't that important anyway. Just focus on the big ticket items like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the virgin birth, and don't worry too much about the rapture. But you see, what you discover is Paul unfolded this doctrine to brand new Christians. That's who the Thessalonians were. And he didn't hide from them uh, prophetic truth, even though they were very young in the Lord. Uh, 
And what you'll discover as you go through 1 Thessalonians is Paul links the doctrine of the rapture to other critical doctrines. Uh, For example, he links it to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that's probably the first reference to the rapture. He links it to the Holy Spirit in verse 5. He uh, links it to uh, their conversion in verse 9. And even in the passage we just read, you'll notice that Paul links it to their growth in Christ or their maturity. Uh, Backing up to chapter 4, verse 3, you'll see he links it to their walk and their sanctification. And uh, after he finishes teaching the doctrine of the rapture, he concludes uh, this book by talking about how we need to continue to grow in Christ's likeness and pursue holiness. So what you'll discover with Paul is he throws the rapture or the concept of the rapture in with other doctrines that most of us would say are very, very important to the life of the Christian. Second truth about the rapture I'd like to call your attention to is we believe that the rapture is an event which is distinct from the second advent of Christ. And so what we believe is that the um, coming of Jesus is actually going to be broken into two phases. First, Christ is going to come for the church before the tribulation. And then he will return again at the end of the tribulation period to establish his thousand-year kingdom upon the earth. So uh, you might ask, well, why do you believe that? And the answer to that is when you actually study all of the second coming passages in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, what you'll discover is they can't be harmonized. They're saying two different things. And if you care about details, which I hope you do, you begin to see that these two events are distinct. Uh, For example... In the rapture, Christ comes in the air, but in the second advent, he, his feet actually touch the earth, Zechariah 14.4. In the rapture, he comes for his saints, and I have all, all the verses on the screen, so we won't look at all of them. But in the second advent, he comes with his saints. The rapture is a blessing. Did you see how Paul concluded his thoughts on the rapture in verse 18? comfort one another with these words. Second Advent is actually a time of judgment for unbelievers on the earth, uh, Revelation 19 and verse 15. The rapture, now this word may throw you a little bit, but it's what we would call an event that's invisible. And uh, what I mean by that is the only people that will hear this trumpet and uh, be caught up is the church of Jesus Christ. Um, It really doesn't affect the unbelieving world other than seeing everybody gone, I guess. But the second advent at the end of the tribulation period is is an event which is visible to the whole earth. In fact, Revelation 1-7 says every eye will see him. The rapture is announced by an archangel, as we read, but the second advent involves myriads of angels. The rapture, as I'll be showing you, is a resurrection. It's the time in history when you receive and I receive uh, our resurrected bodies. The second advent of Christ, there is no uh, bodily resurrection mentioned. The rapture is God's rescue operation for the church. The second advent is different. God, Christ, is coming back to rescue Israel from the Antichrist. So the more you get committed to a literal approach to the Bible and being concerned about details, the more you start to see that these are two different events, the rapture being an event which is distinct from the second advent of Christ, which takes us to number three. The rapture will involve the catching away of all living believers to meet the Lord in the air. Now, where am I getting that from? Take a look again at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Paul says, Then we 
who are alive and remain will be caught up together. The uh, Greek verb for caught up is uh, harpazo, which basically when you look that up in the Greek lexicon, it means to be, to be seized or caught up by force. In fact, from that word harpazo, translated caught up, we get the English word harpoon, you know, where you're spearing, putting a piece of metal into a, a fish and, or a whale or whatever, and you're pulling it towards yourself. Uh, that's what's communicated in this particular verb, uh, harpazo. And we have today a lot of uh, what I would call rapture critics. Some people, it's like they devote their whole life to debunking the rapture. And one of the arguments that they use is they say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Has anybody heard that argument? Yeah, the word rapture is not even in the Bible, so how can you believe it's true? And my basic answer to that is, well, the word trinity is not in the Bible either. You believe in the trinity, don't you? Uh, what is the trinity? The trinity is a way of describing something very complex in the Bible, one God who has expressed himself in three different personages. You know, we use this expression, the Trinity. And it's the same with this concept of the rapture. The, the, yes, the word rapture per se is not in the Bible, but the concept is there. Now, if all of that is true, then why do we, how do we get stuck on this word rapture? Why do we call the rapture the rapture when the word rapture is not even in the Bible? Well, it has to do with the translation of that Greek verb harpazo into Latin. Uh, there was a guy named Jerome around the 4th century who translated the Greek New Testament into Latin. And as he translated it, because he was trying to put the scripture into the language of the common man, he used a word called rapio. And when English translations translated that word, or when that word is translated into English, I should say, you get the word rapture. So the word rapture actually comes from the Greek translated into Latin, uh, translated into English. So there's a, a logical reason why we call the rapture the rapture, even though it is true the exact word the rapture is not found in the Greek New Testament, although the concept uh, is clearly there. So the rapture is a lot of different things as we're seeing. It's an important doctrine. It's an event that's distinct from the second advent. It's going to involve the catching away of all living believers to meet the Lord in the air. And uh, there's something else to know about the rapture. The rapture is a reunion. It's a reunion. Notice, if you will, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. And verses 14 through 16, once again, Paul says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. First time I saw that expression, dead in Christ, I thought, is that, who is that? Is that the Episcopalians? Is that the Methodists? <laughs> Presbyterians? I mean, who are we talking about here? But the fact of the matter is the dead in Christ is actually a reference to people in the age of the church that have trusted in this man, Jesus Christ, and are part of the body of Christ, and they, upon death, go where? Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 8 says that. Matter of fact, as our plane was coming in uh, this evening, I was thinking about that verse because it got a little, you know, jittery there. And then the stewardess gets on the microphone and we land and she goes, she says this, she goes, whew, we made it, which didn't engender a lot of confidence. So I'm thinking this whole time, well, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But that's, that's the reality. Anybody that's trusted in Christ in the age of the church goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. That is uh, 
who Paul is talking about here related to the dead in Christ. Now, the Thessalonians were very worried about their loved ones who had believed in Jesus and been killed, probably through martyrdom. Because when you study the chronology of the Thessalonians, what you discover is uh, the, the Thessalonian church was under great attack physically by unbelieving Jews that had pushed Paul out of Thessalonica. And so they had had uh, loved ones in Christ that, that were dead, and Paul had been with them earlier and taught them about the rapture. And they basically wanted to know, well, what's, what about those that have died in Christ? What's going to happen to them? And they were, they were worried about this. And Paul says not to worry. The dead in Christ will rise first at the point of the rapture. In other words, those souls that are now in the presence of the Lord are, as I understand it, resurrected, placed in resurrected bodies. We'll talk about the resurrection in just a minute. And they begin to descend and those of us that are alive on the earth at the time, I, I hope this happens in our generation. I can't guarantee that, but I hope it does. Those of us that are alive on the earth are then seized by force and caught up. And there's a giant reunion in the sky. And we see, you know, uh, believing friends, relatives, grandparents, parents, Maybe someone that had a great role in your life as a Sunday school teacher or someone that led you to Christ that has now passed on. You see them again at the point of the rapture. So if you die uh, before the rapture occurs, you're in that group coming down. If you are alive on the earth at the time when the rapture occurs, you're caught up. And Paul's whole point is to comfort the Thessalonians, because he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what the Thessalonians were concerned about. You're going to see these deceased loved ones again in Christ at the point of the rapture. It's a great, great comfort. Uh, you see their concern in verse 13. You see Paul developing the doctrine of the rapture all the way through verse 17. And then the conclusion is a word of comfort. It's the whole doctrine is there designed to comfort the Christian. And so it's a, it's a wonderful doctrine to talk about. You know, a lot of people, when you talk about the rapture, they're afraid. And uh, every time I hear someone express fear about the rapture, it always saddens me to a certain extent because that is not why the Holy Spirit has given the church uh, this particular doctrine. Well, let's uh, turn in our Bibles. And of course, all of that was supposed to be up as I was talking. That happens a lot to me. Uh, but I'll give the pastor the PowerPoint. He can disseminate it, hopefully, something to that extent. Um, but let's go over to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's look at the second major rapture passage, 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, verses 50 through 58. I'm going to advance the slide so I don't commit the same sin twice there. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Now notice what Paul says here. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable has put on the imperishable and this mortal has put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, notice the application, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Just as a side note, notice how the doctrine of the rapture is linked to daily life. 
you see the uh, doctrine unfolded, verses 50 through 57, and that has an effect, immediate effect on how we live if we think correctly about this doctrine of the rapture. That's why it disturbs me to hear people say, this teaching is not important. Uh, in Paul's mind, it's extremely important. Which takes us to fact number five, the rapture will be a resurrection. Uh, you see the whole concept of resurrection explained there in verses 50 through 52. He talks how the perishable will be put, turned into imperishable, mortal into immortality. So what can we say about the rapture? The rapture is the point in time in which the church age believer receives their resurrected body. You say, well, do we really need a resurrected body? Uh, let me prove to you that we need a resurrected body. All you have to do is take out your high school yearbook <laughs> and compare it to your modern driver's license picture and you'll see something's going on with your body. Uh, in fact, I went to my 30-year reunion. To be honest with you, I couldn't recognize 75% of the people. They couldn't recognize me. If it wasn't for those little name tags and pictures, uh, most of the people would be unrecognizable because the fall of man has produced a deterioration of the physical body. You remember a Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, from dust you are to what? Dust you shall return. So we receive this resurrected body. I believe it's still you and it's still me. It's just I'm going to look a lot better and feel a lot better. And so are you. It's, it's the body that was always intended for us to have by God with the curse, or I should say the consequences of sin, pulled out of it because the body is under a deterioration. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. Is that happening to anybody? The inner man is being renewed day by day. You see, eternity with God is so awesome, we have to be fitted properly for it. It's just like uh, deep sea diving, scuba diving. I can't just go out and do that activity unless I'm fitted properly for it. I have to be given fins, a wetsuit, oxygen mask, uh, oxygen tank rather, mask, and so forth to enjoy that activity to its maximum, and eternity with God is the same way. We have to be fitted properly. The bodies that we're in in their current state are just not fitted properly for eternity with God. Uh, this body is sinful and heaven is holy. This body is temporary and heaven is eternal. And so at the point of the rapture, every church-aged believer receives that resurrected body. Which now takes us to a sixth fact, and this is the part of it I really like, and this is why I'm praying that this happens in our lifetime. The rapture is going to exempt an entire generation of Christians from death. And again, notice 1 Corinthians 15, and notice, if you will, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery... We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. Now, there's a good verse to put on your nursery at your church. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. Uh, just want to make sure you guys are awake out there. Still tracking with me. We will not all sleep is a euphemism for death. What he's saying is we will not all die, but we will be changed, some of us, uh, into a resurrected body. In other words, there is a generation that's living in time at some point that will not experience physical death. And, you know, as we get older and the body starts to deteriorate, all of a sudden that promise looks very inviting, doesn't it? Because if you've ever watched somebody die, a friend, a relative, you know, it's, there's no easy way to die. It's, it's a painful thing to go through. It's a painful thing to watch. And yet there's a generation living in time, I don't know what generation it is, I hope it's us, that will not have to undergo 
the reality of physical death, if indeed we are the rapture generation. And, you know, people look at this and they say, this is just a bunch of science fiction. I mean, you expect me to believe this? The reality of the situation is, if you know your Bible, there have already been multiple raptures. I have on the screen uh, what I would consider to be multiple raptures uh, in the past. Enoch, Genesis 5, was taken to heaven in a rapture before he physically died. Same with Elijah. Now, Christ was as well. His was a little different. That's the ascension. He was already in a resurrected body when he was caught up. Philip was caught up, Acts 8. Paul was caught up into the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12. John was caught up as well to get the vision, the full vision of the apocalypse, Revelation 4, 1 and 2. Now with those three, they had to be brought back down. Wouldn't that be a bummer? To be caught up, I just, Lord, just if you're going to catch me up, I just want to stay up there. Thank you very much. But they were caught up and they were brought back down. The two witnesses in the great tribulation period, Revelation 11, uh, will be raptured as well. So what you start to see is there have been already in biblical history multiple raptures. The only difference is the next time around, God's coming for, for a whole busload of people. He's coming for a generation of Christians. He's not coming for an individual here or there. And uh, if you look at the um, underlining there, uh, Revelation 12.5, Acts 8.39, 2 Corinthians 12.2 and 4, the Greek verb harpazo, which is our rapture word that we studied earlier, is used in all of those passages. So the Holy Spirit is saying there's been a dress rehearsal already with the rapture. The, the, main, the main attraction, the main event uh, is on the horizon. Which takes us to number seven. The rapture will be instantaneous. Notice, uh, if you will, 1 Corinthians 15. And notice, if you will, verse 52. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Notice that the velocity or the speed at which the rapture will occur is analogized to the blinking of an eye. How much time does it take to blink? It's just a split second. And in fact, in this passage, the verse I just read, it also says, in a moment... The Greek word for moment is atomos. Anybody know the English word we get from atomos? Atom, which is a particle that's so small, it's indivisible. And by way of analogy, what Paul is saying is the rapture will take place in, in such a short period of time. That short period of time will be virtually indivisible. Now, sometimes... When God works, he works over a long period. We're going to be learning uh, tomorrow about the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, you might know about this since you're going through the Bible in a year, is my understanding, at this church. You're, you're learning at some point about the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So sometimes God has a long period of time in, in which he works, but that's not how it's going to be with the rapture. The rapture is not going to take place over a long period of time. It's going to take place in a nanosecond in the twinkling of an eye. Which takes us to number eight. The rapture is a mystery. It's a mystery. Uh, notice again, if you will, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. How does Paul precede his teaching on the rapture? He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Which uh, is a frustrating word because in English, the word mystery means something very different than it does in the Greek language. Uh, mystery in English, you know, if you're watching a, reading a mystery novel, for example, you don't know who the bad guy is until the end. 
So a mystery in English is something that has to be searched out with great diligence. And that's not what the Greek word mysterion, translated mystery, means in Greek. What it means is a new disclosure. It means a veil has been pulled back to disclose something clearly, which has never been before revealed or divulged in biblical history. And that's what is meant by a mystery. So all of this to say that the rapture is a new teaching. It is a teaching that really does not come sharply into focus until you get to the pages of the New Testament. It's really not until the Apostle Paul that we get the first in-depth development, if you will, of the doctrine of the rapture. So you can read the Old Testament until your eyeballs bleed, but you're not going to find the rapture of the church in the Old Testament. And quite frankly, you're not even going to find it in the Gospels, except for one little point in the upper room discourse when Jesus talks about, in my Father's house are many mansions. Uh, That's a bad translation, but we won't go to that right now, Um, which wrecks a lot of songs, by the way. Uh, I gave a whole sermon one time as, as a guest speaker at a church on why that doesn't mean mansion. And I looked out of the corner of my eye and the worship leader was, you know, shuffling around. And finally I said, well, what was all that shuffling about? He goes, well, you just wrecked all my closing songs by, by saying that. <laughs> but we won't go into the mansions in the sky right now. Uh, but the concept of the rapture, that's probably the first place Christ even hints at it. So you don't find it anywhere else. And had it not been for Paul, we would virtually know nothing about the doctrine of the rapture. So it's a New Testament, what we would call church age concept. Now the second advent, where Jesus returns and his feet touch planet earth and he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives and he establishes his kingdom, you'll find that in the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, uh, what is the oldest book of the Bible? Book of Job. And Job 19, verse 25 says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. So the second advent is very openly disclosed in Old Testament and New Testament, but not so the rapture, because the rapture is a mystery. And in fact, it's not just the rapture that's a mystery. It's the whole age of the church that we're in now. We're living in a very unique period of time in between the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, and the rapture, where God is doing something very special and very unique. He is forming a new man called the Church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. God has never done anything like this in world history. It's a project that he's been involved in for the last 2,000 years. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of that body. And I'm part of of that body. And the fact of the matter is, that whole age of time is a mystery. Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 6, we don't have time to read the whole passage, but if you just jot that down and read it, you'll see that the whole age of the church is a mystery. The rapture being part of that mystery realm doctrine given uh, specifically to the church. And so, why do we know what we know about the church? Largely because of the influence of the great Apostle Paul. Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters. And in those 13 letters, he fills out everything you'd want to know about the church, which has never been before disclosed. What is the church's function? What is the church's leadership supposed to look like? What is the church supposed to be doing? And uh, had it not been for God's work through Paul in these 13 letters, we would know virtually nothing about the church. The doctrine of the rapture is part of that doctrine, specifically pertaining to the church. Paul explains it as a mystery because he's explaining how the church is going to end. The church age, would you not agree, began with a miracle. Acts 2 the day of Pentecost, Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved. A miracle started that time period. 
And what Paul is disclosing here is the rapture of the church will be the great miracle that ends the age of the church. So the church age began with a miracle, the day of Pentecost. The church age will end with a miracle, the rapture of the church. And had it not been for Paul's writings, we would know almost nothing with very few hints about this unique time period that we're living in. That's why I think Paul was in prison so frequently. You ever notice that? Uh, almost everywhere he goes, he gets thrown in some kind of prison. Because in a first century prison, you don't have a cable TV. Uh, you don't have a weight room. Uh, you've got nothing to do but sit there and receive revelation from God. And that's why he wrote many of his letters in prison. We call four of his letters the prison letters. God was showing Paul this age of time that we're in called the church age, a mystery the rapture just being part of that age. Which takes us to number nine. The rapture is what we would call eminent. Eminent. What does eminent mean? Eminent means any moment the rapture can occur. The rapture is what we would call a signless event. There is no prophetic sign that must first materialize before the rapture of the church can transpire. Uh, did you notice that Paul there in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Paul thought, this could very well happen in his own lifetime. If you cross-reference that with 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, you'll see Paul doing the exact same thing. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The focus of the New Testament church is supposed to be on the any moment appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got several verses on the screen that you can jot down and look up on your own. Just one of them or two of them, 1 Corinthians 1.7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the Antichrist, oh it doesn't say that does it? awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. James 5 and verse 8 says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near or at hand. Folks, uh, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. It's what the New Testament instructs me to do. Uh, I, I love studying prophecy and about the tribulation period, the millennium. We're going to get lots of teaching on that this weekend. The tribulation period is something we ought to be aware of. We ought to be warning people about it. But beloved, that's not the focus of our lives and attention. Israel in the Middle East is fascinating. Israel wanting to rebuild the temple is fascinating. I love all that teaching. But that is not our preoccupation. Our preoccupation is the any moment return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is an eminent, signless event. It could happen before this, teach, this presentation I'm giving is over. Some of you might be praying for that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, I like to use this analogy, and I've heard many Bible teachers use this, and I'm so happy to use it right now because it fits our calendar. You go to the department stores. They start bringing out the Christmas lights, Christmas music, Santa Claus, and you say to yourself, you know, Christmas is coming. But then you say, wait a minute, Thanksgiving occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas. So if Christmas is coming fast, that means what's coming even faster? Thanksgiving. And we see today in our world signs 
like we've never seen. Israel is back in the land. We have a movement amongst many of our politicians towards a one world government. We see microchip technology. We see all kinds of things that are setting the stage for the tribulation period. And I say, wait a minute, if the rapture occurs before the tribulation period begins, then the rapture is coming even quicker, see? And that's to be the focus of the church. And when that becomes your focus, you live differently. If your boss steps out of the room and says, you know, I'll be back in a month, your work habit deteriorates, doesn't it? But if he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to step out of the room, I could be back any second, you work diligently. In fact, uh, when I was younger, living at my parents' house as a teenager, my parents would go away for the weekend, and they would say to myself and my brother, they would say, you are in charge of our home. We're leaving Friday and coming back Sunday. So I'll let you fill in the, in the gaps there. What do you think happened? <laughs> Friday evening, Saturday, Sunday morning, I'll let you fill in the gaps. Then we get nervous. Mom and dad are coming back. Let's get the house in perfect order. And they, and they came back and never knew the difference. But then one time my parents wised up and they said this, we're leaving Friday and we can come back anytime between Friday and Sunday. Now, do you think that had an effect <laughs> on my stewardship of their home? And you see, this is why the devil has worked overtime to destroy this doctrine, because he knows the natural stimulus it has on God's people. You know, you've got people in your life that are unsaved. I've got people in my life that are unsaved. And I know that if the Lord were to come back today, they would be left, to borrow a phrase from Tim LaHaye, they would be left behind. And that creates in me an incentive to evangelize. And then there have been many times where I've been involved in conversations that start to get gossipy. Not, not you guys, you guys are not that way. You guys look very spiritual out there with your Bibles and everything. But, you know, get gossipy and I say, you know what, what if the Lord came back right now? and found me in that conversation. Or you get home late from work, and you start kind of channel surfing, and, you know, some things come on that maybe you shouldn't be watching, maybe too much sexual content, uh, which is not hard to find this day and age, uh, maybe uh, too much violence. And, you know, I just turn the channel sometimes, and I say, you know, it, it would be very embarrassing if my Savior came back right now and found me in this condition and said, oh, so this is, this is how you're using your time. This is how you're being a steward of all of the things that I've given you. And so the rapture is imminent. It can happen in any second. And the Holy Spirit designed it that way. Because he knows the natural stimulation this has on evangelism, holy living, when the rapture is taught and, and believed in. And everywhere, and I, I, Tim LaHaye passed on to be with the Lord recently, but I'm a member of his uh, pre-trib study group, as are the other speakers here. And he would always uh, open up the conference by saying the same thing every single year. I've been going to that group since 2001. He'd say, everywhere the rapture is taught accurately. Anytime a church places a emphasis on teaching the any moment return of Christ, there's always a higher level of holy living, motivation, evangelism, desire for the things of God. And this is why the rapture is what we would call imminent, which uh, takes us to number 10. Number 10, the rapture is a traditional doctrine now being recovered. Because what people say is, where is your doctrine of the rapture in the church fathers? Where is your doctrine of the rapture in the church creeds? 
Where is your doctrine of the rapture and the great confessions of Christendom? Why isn't it not in the Apostles' Creed if it's so important? Why is it not in the Creed of Nicaea uh, if it's so important? How come the great sages of the past, Martin Luther, John Calvin, how come they never taught this doctrine of the rapture? And there actually is a reason why they didn't. But before I give you the reason, I want to go back just for a moment to the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther stood against the Roman Catholic hierarchy. On what doctrine? Salvation by faith alone. And in his debates with the Catholic hierarchy, they would quote popes and monks and church fathers to discredit Luther. And Luther said, I have a church father that outweighs all of them, the Apostle Paul. The just, quoting the book of Galatians, shall live by faith. Luther actually called the book of Galatians his wife. I think in German, mein Frau, mein wife, is how he referred to the book of Galatians. Because he stood totally on the scripture by itself. He goes, it doesn't matter what Pope A, Pope B, Monk A, Monk B said. What matters is, is it in the scripture? And you see, that's the same argument with the rapture. It really doesn't matter what church history has thought about something. I don't mean to be disparaging towards church history. It could be a very valuable study. But that's not the final authority. The final authority is, is it in the scripture? And I'm, I'm convinced, as I've been speaking, that it is uh, in the scripture. So why is it that this doctrine has been lost? Well, what happened early on in Christianity, early on in the age of the church, is there was a split in method of interpretation. Up north, in a place called Antioch, there were a group of people that wanted to hold to a literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. Kind of like the same kind of teachings you get at this conference, at this church. But down uh, south, in a place called Alexandria, Egypt, there arose another group of interpreters who said, well, you can take the Bible literally, except prophecy. So they began to spiritualize away the doctrine of the millennial kingdom. They began to say things like away with this fable of the thousand years. You know, when Jesus talks about wolf and lamb lying down together, that, that doesn't mean a literal kingdom. That's just Jesus giving peace in your heart and those kinds of things. That's what you call a spiritual method of interpretation. And from that school of thought came two individuals who were great spiritualizers of the Bible. One was named Origen, and the other one was named Augustine, or Augustine. Just depends on which uh, syllable gets the emphasis, as I like to say. And around the fourth century, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, which became, I believe, the most influential book in the history of Christianity. And I'm not talking about influence for good, I'm talking about a negative influence, largely. Because in that book, he basically said, prophecy, eschatology, is not meant to be understood literally. And what you have to understand is the church, from that point in time, has been living under that allegorical spell. And the church really didn't start climbing out of that spell until the Protestant Reformation. When the Protestant Reformers went back to a literal approach to the Bible, it's just the Protestant Reformers didn't apply their new literal hermeneutic to Bible prophecy. And that error wasn't corrected probably for another couple hundred years. But isn't it interesting that when you get away from all of this allegorization and spiritualization and you start looking at Bible prophecy literally, what comes roaring back? The doctrine of the coming millennial kingdom and also the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. Our understanding of it comes from a literal approach to prophecy. And if you won't approach prophecy literally, you'll be confused about this as much of the church has been. And so there's actually an explanation 
why these great creeds and confessions don't mention the rapture. They were all developed post-Augustine. However, it's very interesting to note that there were some, a minority opinion, early on in church history that held to a doctrine of a rapture, an actual pre-tribulational doctrine of a rapture. Here's a quote from Pseudo-Ephraim. And we call him Pseudo-Ephraim because it was someone using Ephraim's name. He wrote this about the 4th to the 6th century. And this is what he wrote. Why therefore do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord so that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms all the world. For all the saints and the elect of God, look at this, are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Doesn't that sound like the rapture there? You have a few voices who resisted the allegorical pull of Augustine and held to a literal approach to the Bible, and they did teach a concept of the rapture. And uh, it's in our general time period that I believe God has allowed, through proper Bible study, this very important doctrine to come to pass. So the rapture is an important doctrine. It's distinct from the second advent. It will involve the catching away of all living believers. It will be a reunion, a resurrection, an exemption from death. It'll be instantaneous. It's a mystery doctrine. It is something that is eminent. And it's a traditional doctrine now being recovered. Now, I, I have a couple minutes left. Do you mind if I use those? I'm going to run out the clock here, go into the four corners stall. Uh, let me touch briefly, and I won't go into the same depth that I went into regarding what, but I want to just briefly touch on the subject of when is the rapture. Because as you probably know, there's a big dispute on this. Pre-trib, which we think is the right view, the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Mid-trib, the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. Post-trib, the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. And is that not complicated enough? Someone's got to come up with another one. Pre-wrath rapture, which basically argues that the wrath of God doesn't start until the final 25% of the tribulation. So we're here for three-quarters of the tribulation. I call that three-quarters rapture. And here's sort of what they look like on a chart. The preacher views up top, followed by the others. And just uh, very, 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 very quickly, why is it that I believe with great confidence that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period even starts? Uh, let me give you my list of seven, and I'll do these very fast. You remember David Letterman had his top seven, top ten. Here's my top seven arguments. Uh, but before I get to that, I want you to understand that the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture is under great attack today, just like it has been throughout all of church history. One pastor says, I personally do not believe that by the year 2020, any credible person will be teaching the secret pre-trib rapture doctrine. I think the events are coming in the next five years will utterly destroy the doctrine. And I look at that and I say, well, maybe no one will be teaching it in 2020 because the rapture will have occurred by then. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for anyway. But people kind of make you feel like a fool, a member of the Flat Earth Society, for believing this. So why, why, why do I believe this doctrine? My list of seven, I'm going to do these very fast. Number one, the tribulation period concerns the nation of Israel, not the church. You're going to, we're going to get a lot more teaching on that tomorrow. Jeremiah 30 and verse 7 says, Alas, for there, the, there is a, a, a day great, there is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress but he will be saved from it. What God is doing in the tribulation period is he is bringing unbelieving Israel to faith. 
Now, we as the church are already in faith, are we not? Or you're not part of the church. As J. Vernon McGee said, you're a saint or you're an ain't. <laughs> so why would we be on the earth during this time? It doesn't make any sense. And I don't think any one of these arguments seals the deal, but when you look at all seven cumulatively, I think you have a very powerful case for pre-tribulationalism. Number two, there is no biblical reference to the church on the earth during the tribulation period. The book of Revelation has three parts. Write down the things that you have seen, chapter one. Write down the things that are, chapters two and three. Then he moves into the end times, write down the things that will take place after these things. Chapters 4 through 22 is the treatment on the end times. It's interesting that the word church, the Greek word ekklesia, is used 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You get into the futuristic section of the book, how many references do you find to the church on the earth? How many times is the word church used? Zero, except one time at the end, John signs off, says, teach these things in the churches, the very end of the book. The word church disappears, the concept of the church disappears, Jew and Gentile in one body, and the book starts looking pretty Jewish pretty quickly. God is using 144,000 who? Jewish evangelists from the 12 what? tribes. Why isn't he using the church? That's who he's used for 2,000 years or more. Answer, the church won't be here. And look at any tribulation passage you want to in the Bible. You'll never find any reference to the word church or the concept of the church. So that would be argument number two, the missing church. Number three, the church is promised an exemption from divine wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for what? Wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why am I not destined for wrath? Why do I not stay up late at night worried about the wrath of God? Because Jesus died on a cross for me 2,000 years ago and absorbed the wrath of a holy God in my place. And yet, what is the tribulation period? It is a time of wrath. I have all of the verses there where you can look them up. It's the same Greek word, orge, wrath, that we're not appointed for. Uh, so that would, be, that would be argument number three. Argument, and by the way, the wrath starts fast. Because Jesus is in heaven bringing the wrath forth through the opening of the seven-sealed scroll. I have a quote there, which I won't read to you, but it's from Robert Thomas, a great, great Greek scholar. And he basically is saying the wrath, although it starts to be recognized by man, around Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17, has been something that is happening all the way through that chapter. Through the coming of the Antichrist, war, famine, death, martyrdoms, cosmic disturbances. This is the wrath of God that starts at the beginning of the tribulation period that we are not candidates for. People say, well, you're teaching escapism. In a certain sense, all of Christianity is escapism. Why is that? Because I'm not going to hell. Isn't that escapism? So in a certain sense, I don't have any problems teaching escapism. However, before these events occur, we go through problems. Amen? Trials, man's wrath, Satan's wrath, the world's wrath. But there is a form of wrath that we are exempted from, and that's divine wrath. The tribulation period is an expression of divine wrath. Number four, the rapture is imminent, which means what? It can happen at any moment. We are the only view out there that teaches that Jesus can come back today. Mr. Mid-Tribulationalist, can Jesus come back today? No, because there has to be three and a half years 
of hell on earth before he can come back. Mr. Post-Tribulationalist, can Jesus come back today? No, he can't. Because he can't come back until the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Mr. Three-Quarters Rapturist, can Jesus come back today? No, three-quarters of the tribulation period must result first. Mr. Pre-Tribulationalist, can Jesus come back today? Yes, he can. In fact, the great scholar John Walvoord in his office at Dallas Seminary, a great defender of pre-tribulationalism, had a a plaque. It said, perhaps today. Now, if I'm mid-trib, I can't say perhaps today. I'd say perhaps in 42 months. But he could say perhaps today because he understood the rapture as an eminent, signless, any moment event. Which takes us to the fifth reason for the rapture. By the way, the rapture is designed to what? Scare us? Comfort us. Comfort one another with these words. Can I ask you a question? Which of these views comforts you? Mid-tribulationists are telling me I've got to endure three and a half years of hell on earth and assuming my head is not cut off by the Antichrist, I have the hope of being raptured. That's not a lot of comfort to me. The post-tribulationalist is saying you've got to be here for seven years. You've got to be experiencing the wrath of God and assuming that your head is not cut off by the Antichrist, you have the hope of the rapture. I mean, does that fit the comfort passages at all? I mean, did Paul say to the Thessalonians, you're headed into the wrath of God? Comfort one another with these words? You're going to eyeball it with the Antichrist? Comfort one another with these words? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit eminency and, and it doesn't fit comfort. Our view fits those passages perfectly. Number six, I'll do this fast. The Antichrist cannot come to power until the restrainer is removed. The event that starts the tribulation period is the peace treaty between Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. That's what starts it. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, that that Antichrist can't even come forward until the restrainer is removed. Next question is, who is the what? Who is the restrainer? I believe that the restrainer is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Why would I say that? Because the Holy Spirit is deity, and only he can hold back Satan's man of the hour. And beyond that, there's a switch in gender with the participle restrainer from neuter to masculine in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2. That's a wonderful descriptor of the Holy Spirit because sometimes the Spirit is called pneuma, a neuter noun, and sometimes the Holy Spirit is called he. Jesus in the upper room discourse often referred to the Holy Spirit with the masculine pronoun. What am I trying to get at? I'm trying to get at the fact that the, and by the way, where does the Holy Spirit live? In us. How long is he in there for? Forever. God is holding back the Antichrist today through the presence of the church on the earth. And it's not until that is withdrawn that the Antichrist can even come to power at all. There are so many people out there that are looking for the Antichrist. But the fact of the matter is you can't know who he is until the church is removed. Uh, Ever since I came of age as a Christian, people have pointed out the Antichrist to me. The first president I voted for was Ronald Reagan. And people say, you just voted for the Antichrist. I said, why is that? Well, Ronald has six letters in it. Wilson has six letters in it. Reagan has six letters in it. Then Saddam Hussein came along, that's the Antichrist. Gorbachev came along, that's the Antichrist. And then Bill Clinton came along. (laughs) And by then I had wised up. I said, that is not the Antichrist. And people say, well, how can you be so sure? Well, there's there's a prophecy in Daniel that says the Antichrist won't have the desire for women. And so that, that ruled uh, Clinton out. 
But the fact of the matter is we can't, we, we can't know who he is. People were guessing, there's a quote from Irenaeus, people were guessing who the Antichrist was in his day. He says, knock it off. So the Antichrist, with his treaty with Israel that starts the tribulation, can't even come forward to do that until the church is removed. You with me on that? And the last one, and with this I'm finished. Symbolic parallels. Uh, Jesus in Luke 17 and verses 26 through 30 says, As it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be. If you want to understand the coming tribulation period, you understand the flood, a great judgment of God. You understand what God did at Sodom and Gomorrah a great cataclysmic judgment. Let me ask you a question. What do both of those events have in common? Both times, God removes his people before judgment comes. Enoch is taken to heaven, Genesis 5. The flood starts to come, Genesis 7. Noah is tucked safely in the ark. Then the flood comes. And even Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a character there named Lot, Lot is called a righteous man in the New Testament. Did you know that? In 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, you'll see three references to Lot being a righteous man. And you look at the guy's life, he doesn't look very righteous to me. He's living in a backslidden state. In fact, I have a sermon title, I call it, Are You a Lot Like Lot? And yet, even carnal Lot, the destroying angel came and said, I, he didn't say I will not, says I cannot, Genesis 19, do anything until you're removed. The pattern of God in Sodom and Gomorrah, the pattern of God in the flood is the removal of God's people before judgment comes. And I think that same pattern will come again. The church will be removed from the earth before the tribulation period begins no one argument seals the deal, but seven cumulatively give us very strong conviction of a pre-tribulational view. The tribulation concerns Israel. There's no biblical reference to the, earth on, uh, the church on the earth during the tribulation period. The rapture is an exemption from divine wrath. The rapture is imminent. The rapture is a comfort. The Antichrist can't even come to power until the restrainer is gone. And then symbolic parallels. So a lot of information overload tonight, uh, but I tried to develop what is the rapture, uh, developing the doctrine from two basic passages that Paul wrote, and then trying to get into the subject of when is the rapture. Let me uh, close this in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this conference and this pastor and elders and church that want to teach on these things. And help us, Father, in these last days that we live where this doctrine is always being put down to earnestly contend for the faith and uh, have a proper understanding of prophecy. I pray you'll be with uh, this whole conference and give us balance in this very important subject of eschatology. We ask that you'll do that great work in our midst. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.